Book Three, Part Four, of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Annals, by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. Book Three, A.D. 20-22, Part Four. Tiberius, having gained credit for forbearance by the check he had given to the growing terror of the informers, wrote a letter to the Senate requesting the tribunician power for Drusus. This was a phrase which Augustus devised as a designation of supremacy, so that without assuming the name of king or dictator, he might have some title to mark his elevation above all other authority. He then chose Marcus Agrippa to be his associate in this power, and on Agrippa's death, Tiberius Nero, that there might be no uncertainty as to the succession. In this manner he thought to check the perverse ambition of others, one he had confidence in Nero's moderation and in his own greatness. Following this precedent, Tiberius now placed Drusus next to the throne. Though while Germanicus was alive, he had maintained an impartial attitude towards the two princes. However, in the beginning of his letter, he implored heaven to prosper his plans on behalf of the state, and then added a few remarks, without falsehood or exaggeration, on the character of the young prince. He had, he reminded them, a wife and three children, and his age was the same as that at which he had himself been formally summoned by the divine Augustus to undertake this duty. Nor was it a precipitate step. It was only after an experience of eight years, after having quelled mutinies and settled wars, after a triumph and two consulships, that he was adopted as a partner in trials already familiar to him. The senators had anticipated this message, and hence their flattery was the more elaborate but they could devise nothing but voting statues of the two princes, shrines to certain deities, temples, arches, and the usual routine, except that Marcus Silanus sought to honour the princes by a slur on the consulate, and proposed that on all monuments, public or private, should be inscribed to mark the date, the names not of the consuls, but of those who were holding the tribunician power. Quintus Hertirius, when he brought forward a motion that the decrees passed that day should be set up in the Senate House in letters of gold, was laughed at as an old dotard who would get nothing but infamy out of such utterly loathsome sycophancy. Meantime, Junius Blisus received an extension of his government of Africa, and Servius Maloginensis, the priest of Jupiter, demanded to have Asia allotted to him. It was, he asserted, a popular error that it was not lawful for the priests of Jupiter to leave Italy, 
In fact, his own legal position differed not from that of the priests of Mars and of Quirinus. If these latter had provinces allotted to them, why was it forbidden to the priests of Jupiter? There were no resolutions of the people or anything to be found in the books of ceremonies on the subject. Pontiffs had often performed the rites to Jupiter when his priest was hindered by illness or by public duty. For seventy-five years after the suicide of Cornelius Merula, no successor to his office had been appointed, yet religious rites had not ceased. If during so many years it was possible for there to be no appointment without any prejudice to religion, with what comparative ease might he be absent for one year's proconsulate? That these priests in former days were prohibited by the pontiff from going into the provinces was the result of private feuds. Now, thank heaven, the supreme pontiff was also the supreme man, and was influenced by no rivalry, hatred, or personal feeling. As the augur Lentulus and others argued on various grounds against this view, the result was that they awaited the decision of the supreme pontiff. Tiberius deferred any investigation into the priest's legal position, but he modified the ceremonies which had been decreed in honour of Drusus's tribunician power with special censure on the extravagance of the proposed inscription in gold, so contrary to national usage. Letters also from Drusus were read, which, though studiously modest in expression, were taken to be extremely supercilious. We have fallen so low, people said, that even a mere youth who has received so high an honour does not go as a worshipper to the city's gods, does not enter the senate, does not so much as take the auspices on his country's soil. There is a war for sooth, or he is kept from us in some remote part of the world. Why, at this very moment, he is on a tour amid the shores and lakes of Campania. Such is the training of the future ruler of mankind, such the lesson he first learns from his father's counsels. An aged emperor may indeed shrink from the citizen's gaze, and plead the weariness of declining years and the toils of the past. But as for Drusus... What can be his hindrance but pride? Tiberius, meantime, while securing to himself the substance of imperial power, allowed the Senate some shadow of its old constitution by referring to its investigation certain demands of the provinces. In the Greek cities, license and impunity in establishing sanctuaries were on the increase. Temples were thronged with the vilest of the slaves. The same refuge screened the debtor against his creditor, as well as men suspected of capital offences. No authority was strong enough to check the turbulence of a people which protected the crimes of men as much as the worship of the gods. It was accordingly decided that the different states were to send their charters and envoys to Rome. Some voluntarily relinquished privileges which they had groundlessly usurped. Many trusted to old superstitions, or to their services to the Roman people. It was a grand spectacle on that day, when the Senate examined grants made by our ancestors, 
treaties with allies, even decrees of kings who had flourished before Rome's ascendancy, and the forms of worship of the very deities, with full liberty, as in former days, to ratify or to alter. First of all came the people of Ephesus. They declared that Diana and Apollo were not born at Delos, as was the vulgar belief. They had in their own country a river Centrius, a grove Ortigia, where Latona, as she leaned in the pangs of labour on an olive still standing, gave birth to those two deities, whereupon the grove and the divine intimation was consecrated. There Apollo himself, after the slaughter of the Cyclops, shunned the wrath of Jupiter. There too Father Bacchus, when victorious in war, pardoned the suppliant Amazons who had gathered round the shrine. Subsequently, by the permission of Hercules, when he was subduing Lydia, the grandeur of the temple's ceremonial was augmented, and during the Persian rule its privileges were not curtailed. They had afterwards been maintained by the Macedonians, then by ourselves. Next, the people of Magnesia relied on arrangements made by Lucius Scipio and Lucius Sulla. These generals, after respectively defeating Antiochus and Mithridates, honoured the fidelity and courage of the Magnesians by allowing the Temple of Diana of the White Brow to be an inviolable sanctuary. Then the people of Aphrodisia produced a decree of the dictator Caesar for their old services to his party, and those of Stratonicia, one lately passed by the divine Augustus, in which they were commended for having endured the Parthian invasion without wavering in their loyalty to the Roman people. Aphrodisia maintained the worship of Venus, Stratonicia that of Jupiter and of Diana of the Crossways. Haro Caesarea went back to a higher antiquity and spoke of having a Persian Diana, whose fane was consecrated in the reign of Cyrus. They quoted too the names of Perpina, Isauricus, and many other generals who had conceded the same sacred character not only to the temple, but to its precincts for two miles. Then came the Cyprians on behalf of three shrines, the oldest of which had been set up by their founder Arius to the Paphian Venus, the second by his son Amathus to Venus of Amathus, and the last to Jupiter of Salamis by Teuca when he fled from the wrath of his father Telamon. Audience was also given to embassies from other states. The senators wearied by their multiplicity and seeing the party spirit that was being roused, entrusted the inquiry to the consuls, who were to sift each title, and see if it involved any abuse, and then refer back the entire matter to the Senate. Besides the states already mentioned, the consuls reported that they had ascertained that at Pergamus there was a sanctuary of Aesculapius, but that the rest relied on an origin lost in the obscurity of antiquity. For example, the people of Smyrna quoted an oracle of Apollo, which had commanded them to dedicate a temple to Venus Stratonicus, and the islanders of Tenos an utterance from the same deity, bidding them consecrate a statue and a fane to Neptune. Sardis preferred a more modern claim, 
a grant from the victorious Alexander. So again Miletus relied on King Darius. But in each case their religious worship was that of Diana or Apollo. The Cretans too demanded a like privilege for a statue of the divine Augustus. Decrees of the Senate were passed, which though very respectful, still prescribed certain limits, and the petitioners were directed to set up bronze tablets in each temple, to be a sacred memorial, and to restrain them from sinking into selfish aims under the mask of religion. About this time, Julia Augusta had an alarming illness, which compelled the emperor to hasten his return to Rome, for hitherto there had been a genuine harmony between the mother and son, or a hatred well concealed. Not long before, for instance, Julia, in dedicating a statue to the divine Augustus near the theatre of Marcellus, had inscribed the name of Tiberius below her own, and it was surmised that the emperor, regarding this as a slight on a sovereign's dignity, had brooded over it with deep and disguised resentment. However, the Senate now decreed supplications to the gods, and the celebration of the great games, which were to be exhibited by the pontiffs, augurs, the colleges of the fifteen and of the seven, with the Augustal Brotherhood. Lucius Apronius moved that the heralds too should preside over these games. This the emperor opposed, distinguishing the peculiar privileges of the sacred guilds, and quoting precedents. Never, he argued, had the heralds this dignity. The Augustal priests were included expressly because their sacred office was specially attached to the family for which vows were being performed. My purpose is not to relate at length every motion, but only such as were conspicuous for excellence, or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated, and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. So corrupted indeed and debased was that age by sycophancy, that not only the foremost citizens, who were forced to save their grandeur by servility, but every ex-consul, most of the ex-praetors, and a host of inferior senators, would rise in eager rivalry to propose shameful and preposterous motions. Tradition says that Tiberius, as often as he left the senate-house, used to exclaim in Greek, How ready these men are to be slaves! Clearly, even he, with his dislike of public freedom, was disgusted at the abject abasement of his creatures. From unseemly flatteries, they passed by degrees to savage acts. Caius Silanus, proconsul of Asia, was accused by our allies of extortion, whereupon Mamercus Scaurus, an ex-consul, Junius Otho, a praetor, Brutidius Niger, an edile, simultaneously fastened on him and charged him with sacrilege to the divinity of Augustus and contempt of the majesty of Tiberius, while Mamercus Scaurus quoted old precedents 
the prosecutions of Lucius Cotta by Scipio Africanus, of Servius Galba by Cato the Censor, and of Publius Rutilius by Scaurus. As if indeed Scipio's and Cato's vengeance fell on such offences, or that of the famous Scaurus, whom his great-grandson, a blot on his ancestry, this Mamercus was now disgracing by his infamous occupation. Junius Otho's old employment had been the keeping of a preparatory school. Subsequently, becoming a senator by the influence of Sejanus, he shamed his origin, low as it was, by his unblushing effronteries. Brutidius, who was rich in excellent accomplishments, and was sure, had he pursued a path of virtue to reach the most brilliant distinction, was goaded on by an eager impatience while he strove to outstrip his equals, then his superiors, and at last even his own aspirations. Many have thus perished, even good men, despising slow and safe success, and hurrying on, even at the cost of ruin, to premature greatness. Gellius Publicola and Marcus Peconius, respectively quaestor and lieutenant of Silanus, swelled the number of the accusers. No doubt was felt as to the defendant's conviction for oppression and extortion, but there was a combination against him that must have been perilous even to an innocent man. Besides a host of adverse senators, there were the most accomplished orators of all Asia, who, as such, had been retained for the prosecution, and to these he had to reply alone, without any experience in pleading, and under that personal apprehension which is enough to paralyse even the most practised eloquence. For Tiberius did not refrain from pressing him with angry voice and look, himself putting incessant questions, without allowing him to rebut or evade them, and he had often even to make admissions that the questions might not have been asked in vain. His slaves too were sold by auction to the state agent, to be examined by torture, and that not a friend might help him in his danger, charges of treason were added, a binding guarantee for sealed lips. Accordingly, he begged a few days' respite, and at last abandoned his defence, after venturing on a memorial to the emperor, in which he mingled reproach and entreaty. Tiberius, that his proceedings against Silanus might find some justification in precedent, ordered the divine Augustus's indictment of Alesis Messala, also a proconsul of Asia, and the senate's sentence on him to be read. He then asked Lucius Piso his opinion. After a long preliminary eulogy on the prince's clemency, Piso pronounced that Silanus ought to be outlawed and banished to the island of Giarus. The rest concurred, with the exception of Cnaeus Lentulus, who with the assent of Tiberius proposed that the property of Silanus's mother, as she was very different from him, should be exempted from confiscation and given to the son. Cornelius Dolabella, however, by way of carrying flattery yet further, 
sharply censured the morals of Silenus, and then moved that no one of disgraceful life and notorious infamy should be eligible for a province, and that of this the emperor should be judge. Laws, indeed, he said, punish crimes committed, but how much more merciful would it be to individuals, how much better for our allies to provide against their commission? The emperor opposed the motion. Although, he said, I am not ignorant of the reports about Silenus, still we must decide nothing by hearsay. Many a man has behaved in a province quite otherwise than was hoped or feared of him. Some are roused to higher things by great responsibility. Others are paralysed by it. It is not possible for a prince's knowledge to embrace everything, and it is not expedient that he should be exposed to the ambitious schemings of others. Laws are ordained to meet facts, inasmuch as the future is uncertain. It was the rule of our ancestors that, whenever there was first an offence, some penalty should follow. Let us not revolutionize a wisely devised and ever-approved system. Princes have enough burdens, and also enough power. Rights are invariably abridged as despotism increases. Nor ought we to fall back on imperial authority when we can have recourse to the laws. Such constitutional sentiments were so rare with Tiberius that they were welcomed with all the heartier joy, knowing, as he did, how to be forbearing, when he was not under the stimulus of personal resentment, he further said that Giarus was a dreary and uninhabited island, and that, as a concession to the Junian family, and to a man of the same order as themselves, they might let him retire by preference to Kithnus. This, he added, was also the request of Torquata, Silenus's sister, a vestal of primitive purity. The motion was carried after a division. Audience was next given to the people of Cyrene, and on the prosecution of Ancharius Priscus, Caesius Cordus was convicted of extortion. Lucius Ennius, a Roman knight, was accused of treason, for having converted a statue of the emperor to the common use of silver plate, but the emperor forbade his being put upon his trial, though Attius Capito openly remonstrated with a show of independence. The senate, he said, ought not to have wrested from it the power of deciding a question, and such a crime must not go unpunished. Granted that the emperor might be indifferent to a personal grievance, still he should not be generous in the case of wrongs to the commonwealth. Tiberius interpreted the remark according to its drift, rather than its mere expression, and persisted in his veto. Capito's disgrace was the more conspicuous, for, versed as he was in the science of law, human and divine, he had now dishonoured a brilliant public career, as well as a virtuous private life. Next came a religious question, as to the temple in which ought to be deposited the offering which the Roman knights had vowed to fortune of the knights, for the recovery of Augusta. Although that goddess had several shrines in Rome, there was none with this special designation. It was ascertained that there was a temple so called at Antium, 
and that all sacred rites in the towns of Italy, as well as temples and images of deities, were under the jurisdiction and authority of Rome. Accordingly, the offering was placed at Antium. As religious questions were under discussion, the emperor now produced his answer to Servius Malogonensis, Jupiter's priest, which he had recently deferred, and read the pontifical decree, prescribing that whenever illness attacked a priest of Jupiter, he might, with the supreme pontiff's permission, be absent more than two nights, provided it was not during the days of public sacrifice, or more than twice in the same year. This regulation of the Emperor Augustus sufficiently proved that a year's absence and a provincial government were not permitted to the priests of Jupiter. There was also cited the precedent of Lucius Metellus, supreme pontiff, who had detained at Rome the priest Aulus Postumius. And so Asia was allotted to the ex-consul next in seniority to Maloginensis. About the same time, Lepidus asked the Senate's leave to restore and embellish, at his own expense, the Basilica of Paulus, that monument of the Aemilian family. Public-spirited munificence was still in fashion, and Augustus had not hindered Taurus, Philippus, or Balbus from applying the spoils of war or their superfluous wealth to adorn the capital and to win the admiration of posterity. Following these examples, Lepidus, though possessed of a moderate fortune, now revived the glory of his ancestors. Pompeius's theatre, which had been destroyed by an accidental fire, the emperor promised to rebuild, simply because no member of the family was equal to restoring it. But Pompeius's name was to be retained. At the same time, he highly extolled Sejanus, on the ground that it was through his exertions and vigilance that such fury of the flames had been confined to the destruction of a single building. The Senate voted Sejanus a statue, which was to be placed in Pompeius's theatre. And soon afterwards, the emperor, in honouring Junius Blysus, proconsul of Africa, with triumphal distinctions, said that he granted them as a compliment to Sejanus whose uncle Blysus was. Still the career of Blysus merited such a reward. For Tacferinus, though often driven back, had recruited his resources in the interior of Africa, and had become so insolent as to send envoys to Tiberius, actually demanding a settlement for himself and his army, or else threatening us with an interminable war. Never, it is said, was the emperor so exasperated by an insult to himself and the Roman people as by a deserter and brigand assuming the character of a belligerent. Even Spartacus, when he had destroyed so many consular armies and was burning Italy with impunity, though the state was staggering under the tremendous wars of Sertorius and Mithridates, had not the offer of an honourable surrender on stipulated conditions. Far less, in Rome's most glorious height of power, should a robber like Tacferinus be bought off by peace and concessions of territory. He entrusted the affair to Blysus, who was to hold out to the other rebels the prospect of laying down their arms without hurt themselves, while he was, 
by any means to secure the person of the chief. Many surrendered themselves on the strength of this amnesty. Before long, the tactics of Tacferinus were encountered in a similar fashion. Unequal to us in solid military strength, but better in a war of surprises, he would attack, would elude pursuit, and still arrange ambuscades with a multitude of detachments. And so we prepared three expeditions and as many columns. One of the three under the command of Cornelius Scipio, Blysus's lieutenant, was to stop the enemy's forays on the Leptitani and his retreat to the Garamantes. In another quarter, Blysus's son led a separate force of his own to save the villages of Curta from being ravaged with impunity. Between the two was the general himself with some picked troops. By establishing redoubts and fortified lines in commanding positions, he had rendered the whole country embarrassing and perilous to the foe, for, whichever way he turned, a body of Roman soldiers was in his face, or on his flank, or frequently in the rear. Many were thus slain or surprised. Blysus then further divided his triple army into several detachments under the command of centurions of tried valour. At the end of the summer he did not, as was usual, withdraw his troops and let them rest in winter quarters in the old province, but, forming a chain of forts, as though he were on the threshold of a campaign, he drove Tacferinus by flying columns well acquainted with the desert from one set of huts to another, till he captured the chief's brother, and then returned, too soon, however, for the welfare of our allies, as there yet remained those who might renew hostilities. Tiberius, however, considered the war as finished, and awarded Blysus the further distinction of being held imperator by the legions, an ancient honour conferred on generals who, for good service to the state, were saluted with cheers of joyful enthusiasm by a victorious army. Several men bore the title at the same time, without preeminence above their fellows. Augustus, too, granted the name to certain persons, and now, for the last time, Tiberius gave it to Blysus. Two illustrious men died that year. One was Asinius Saloninus, distinguished as the grandson of Marcus Agrippa and Asinius Pollio, as the brother of Drusus, and the intended husband of the emperor's granddaughter. The other was Capito Ateus, already mentioned, who had won a foremost position in the state by his legal attainments, though his grandfather was but a centurion in Sulla's army, his father having been a praetor. He was prematurely advanced to the consulship by Augustus, so that he might be raised by the honour of this promotion above Labio Antistius, a conspicuous member of the same profession. That age, indeed, produced at one time two brilliant ornaments of peace. But while Labio was a man of sturdy independence, and consequently of wider fame, Capito's obsequiousness was more acceptable to those in power. Labio, because his promotion was confined to the praetorship, gained in public favour through the wrong, Capito, in obtaining the consulship, incurred the hatred which grows out of envy. Junior, too, 
the niece of Cato, wife of Caius Cassius, and sister of Marcus Brutus, died this year, the sixty-fourth after the Battle of Philippi. Her will was the theme of much popular criticism, for, with her vast wealth, after having honourably mentioned almost every nobleman by name, she passed over the emperor. Tiberius took the omission graciously, and did not forbid a panegyric before the rostra with the other customary funeral honours. The busts of twenty most illustrious families were borne in the procession, with the names of Manlius, Quinctius, and others of equal rank. But Cassius and Brutus outshone them all, from the very fact that their likenesses were not to be seen. End of Book 3 End of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tastus Volume 1 Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broderib